Memoirs, how's everybody doing tonight? I like, I like the, young, the youngins coming out tonight, coming to hear some good stories. So welcome to Memoirs, True Stories Unfiltered. So I'm going to give you a quick little thing on why memoirs exist. So every month I try to give a different reason as to why memoirs exist. And this month I have because listening builds trust. When you make the effort to listen to someone, they recognize your interest. They can tell that you're invested in what they're saying. This makes them more comfortable sharing with you and being open. If you were only half listening, not making eye contact or glancing at your phone, the other person won't want to waste their breath. They won't trust you or respect your thoughts and feelings. So here is to listening and building trust. What do we think? Good, right? So by show of hands, how many first-timers do we have here today? Yeah, let's give these people a hand. Thank you for coming out. So I know what you first-timers are thinking. You're all thinking, how can I get up here and tell everybody my story, right? Is that what you're thinking? If that is what you're thinking, you can uh, email us at memoircos at gmail. You can tap me on the shoulder. You can tap her on the shoulder, and we will brainstorm with you to see how we can get you up on this stage to share your story. You can follow us on all the socials. We are on the Facebook and on the Gram at Memoirs COS. We also have a podcast, so if you're interested in listening to some of the stories that happened in the past, pull out your phone and subscribe. We are in all the places, YouTube, Facebook, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, everywhere. So all your favorite places, you can hear the stories. So there are memoir stickers, which I don't have one up here, but it looks like this, but smaller. Those stickers, part of the proceeds go to CASA, and CASA is the court-appointed special advocate, and those are the people that help with foster kids, so one of the reasons I want to help them is because those are kids, and kids are just developing their stories, and if we can let them know from an early age that your story matters, and we want to do whatever we have to do so that you don't develop the type of stories that can be developed in people, so that's why we are trying to sell. Right now it's just stickers, but hopefully we'll sell bigger and better things and be able to give more to that organization. So if you like stickers and you want to put them on your back of your car and your water bottles and all that, please uh, uh, help us out and buy a sticker. Um, all right. So these little papers. Does everybody see these little papers? So these papers are what are called anonymous memoirs. So tonight's theme is perspective is everything. We would like for any of you, all of you, to put a little secret here about perspective that you have experienced in your life. And then back in that corner, there's a little basket. And uh, just fold it up. Don't let anybody know it's you. And we will read them throughout the night. Or we will put them out on the socials. So come on, you know, right? There's pen we put pens on every table. So no excuses. Get those anonymous memoirs. Let's see what's next. So can we put our hands together for 3 East Comedy Club? Thank you, Eric, for letting us use this fantastic space. So make sure to grab a bite and a drink because that's what helps support events like this. And make sure you uh, tip your bartenders, waitresses, because, you know, we need them to work because for some reason they don't want to work in restaurants right now. And it's getting, we, we have to wait too long every time we go out somewhere. All right. So I would like to thank my memoirs team, Maritza, Samantha in the front, Mandy Penn in the back. And don't forget to go do photo things. All this group of girls over here, I want to see photo booth back there in the break because why not? And let's see. And thank you to all of you. Thank you, Colorado Springs. So give yourself a hand. 
And one more hand for our courageous storytellers that are about to take the stage tonight. Yeah. So tonight, the theme again is perspective is everything. We have Carissa Nelson that will be sharing Garden on a Grave. We have Peter Lynch who will be sharing Rewrite the Power. Finish it for me, Peter. Script. <laughs> and Jamie Kimes behind the window. Yes. And now I'm going to share my antidote for the month for this um, perspective is everything. So today is my son's 21st birthday. And I know that this is how you know perspective matters because I barely look 21, right? <laughs> so let's see here. Aaron, and hope, I think he's watching because I sent him the link. So Aaron, welcome to the world of adults. I hope you gain many useful perspectives here. Honestly, it's not always as cool as we imagine it when we're teenagers. There's a lot of wondering, doubting, and failure that will hopefully guide you towards success. There will be tears of both joy and pain. There will be trial and error before discovering the perspectives that will make life truly work. My wish for you and your life is that your memoir becomes everything you dream it could be. That you will always have big and beautiful dreams and the passion, determination, and perspectives to put your head down, grind, and make them a reality. Don't ever forget that we're on the same team. And then no matter where you are and no matter what you do, you know to your core that I love you. I will always be here for you, my beautiful, beautiful, beautiful boy. Happy 21st birthday, Aaron Alexander Aguilera. <laughs> Cheers and thank you. And with that, let's call our first storyteller up onto the stage. Carissa Nelson with Gardens on a Grave. Yeah. Take it off. However you want. You work out, so I know you could do this. <laughs> do you want this in your hand or do you want it here? Definitely my hand. In your hand. I like to walk around. So I know Flip said this whole thing about, like, you guys listening and all that trust. You don't have to listen to me. I'm fine. You guys just do what you want. Wow. I am so excited to be here. Are you ready for me to talk or what? Oh, good. So I'm Carissa. Um... Really honored to be here to share a story that um, I have waited years to be able to tell an audience. Um, so I'm hoping to just talk to you like I would talk to a friend and tell you a little part of an experience that I had and what it did for me and my perspective. If there's one thing I know in certain, for certain in life, it's that pain is inevitable, and suffering is universal. I've felt a lot of pain in my life. You can resist the blows that life deals you, or you can embrace that pain and have a full experience. You can sit with that pain and that suffering, and you can examine it. You can be curious about it, and you can have a full experience in that pain. Because when you have a full, authentic, real experience with pain, you come to understand it, and then you can do something about it. Today I wanna to tell you a story. It's one of my favorite stories, but it was also a story of the worst day of my life. It's become my favorite 
over many, many years because of what I was able to learn about myself throughout the experience. I'm going to show you how I built a garden on a grave. On August 20th, 2008, the day started like any other. I was living with a boyfriend at the time, and I woke up in the morning, and I woke up actually feeling pretty sick to my stomach. And um, I decided I was going to send my father a text message that told him I loved him. Now, this was weird for two reasons. One, do you guys remember 2008? We weren't really texting as much as we do now. That's like all we do now. Um, and two, in my family, we didn't say we loved each other. We didn't hug. We weren't the mushy type. So it was very strange that I was like suddenly feeling this urge to tell my father that I loved him. So I sent the message and I started to get ready for work and um, I realized I had forgotten my contacts. I hate wearing my glasses. So I thought, hmm, maybe I'll stop by my house and get my contacts before I go to work. Nah, 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 nah. I'll just wait till my lunch break and I'll go then. Go to work. Comes lunchtime and I go home to my, my parents' house. I pull up and I go inside and no one's supposed to be there. I don't see anyone. I'm preparing my lunch like I would normally do. Now, I should probably tell you that I was in California at the time. I don't know if any of you have drank water out of the tap in California, but you can't do it like you do it here. <laughs> Colorado tap water, so good. Needless to say, we drank bottled water in California. The reason I tell you this is we had a refrigerator full of bottled water in our garage. So naturally, I get my lunch, I, I go get my water out of the garage, or I go to get my water out of the garage. So I walk up to this door, the garage is behind it, and I open it. <laughs> Before I tell you what was behind that door, let me backtrack just a little bit. As a kid, I was pretty shy, but I had friends. I remember one particular birthday, I invited like 30 girls to my birthday party and we were like 10 and my dad had no idea what to do with us. There were so many of us there. Um, so, I mean, I had friends, I danced, I was a happy girl, but teenage years were rough, right? Teenage years, ugh, no. At 15, um, I was raped by my, well, I thought he was my friend. He had made a bet that he could sleep with two girls in one night, and I happened to be one of them. That took me off into a tailspin. I started binge drinking. I developed eating disorders. I went back and forth from being anorexic to bulimic. I started to sleep with just about anyone who would give me attention because I thought, oh, surely they must love me. No. I ended up in juvie and things were pretty rough. I thought for sure I had hit rock bottom. Boy, was I wrong. You know that phrase? Oh, once you hit rock bottom, there's only one way to go. Up? No. Someone just took a sledgehammer to my rock bottom and it opened up an abyss. I didn't think life could get any worse. So back to the door. I open the door, and I find my dad. He's dead. At first, I see his body, and I trace my eyes up to his face, and I realize, yep, he's dead. Now, I'm going to spare you the details of what I saw, 
because that's not the point of today's story. It's a story for another day of how he died. All you need to know is that he made a mistake. And that mistake killed him. He didn't mean to die, but I found him. In the seconds that followed, I turned my back to that garage door and I ran and I locked the door behind me. And I always find this interesting because even though his body wasn't moving, I swear he was chasing me. Like he's, he's thinking, oh shit, what did my, my daughter just walk on, right? Walk in on. In the seconds that followed, I grabbed my purse and I grabbed the phone and I dialed 911 like they tell you to do. And I'm running around the neighborhood trying to do what the dispatcher is telling me to do. Within minutes, the fire truck arrives. And I remember them coming to me and telling me, yep, your dad is dead. And they're explaining to me how he died. And I'm so confused. I'm like, what are you talking about? What? what? People do this? Like, what, what's going on? You're kidding. He's not dead. And I drop to my knees like a movie. And one of the firemen says, I don't have a tissue, but I'm going to give you this. This is a piece of gauze, which as a matter of fact, still has some of my mascara on it from that day. 2008. In the hours that followed, I watched my mom arrive, her get the news that my dad had died unexpectedly. I had to pick up a phone and call my dad's sister and tell him, tell her, excuse me, that he had died, but I couldn't tell her how. It became a secret. It was embarrassing. I wasn't even allowed to talk about how he died. In the days that followed, it's the typical funeral plan, relatives, people prying. Everyone always wants to know how. How did they die? How did they die? Just like it's going to make it any better. And I had to keep lying. In the weeks that followed, things slowed down and we had our relatives leave. And at that point, I really started to... You know, things slowed down, so I had, I had time to kind of think. And boy, was I pissed. Dad, <laughs> what the hell did you do? He was always after me, like, Carissa, you only lied to me three times in your whole life. <laughs> That's funny. Um, and when I was arrested at 16, you're not my daughter anymore. So needless to say, I struggled with being perfect. Yet I looked at him and I was like, really? Hypocrite? You weren't perfect. Your mistake killed you. I went to a pretty dark place. Was very depressed. I would hallucinate. I remember driving, driving the car and I would slam on my brakes because I swore things jumped out at me. And I'd slam on my brakes only to find that there was nothing there. Things were so bad that I couldn't be in the dark. I couldn't even close my eyes without someone around. My poor boyfriend at the time, the saint that he was, would sit in the bathroom with me because I couldn't keep my eyes closed while I was showering. I needed to know someone was there. Trauma. PTSD, right? Bad experience. <laughs> so those months turned to years and my new reality was very angry. I was pissed off at the world. <laughs> But I knew that that is where I would reside unless I decided to make a change. It wasn't easy. 
But one day my mom came to me and she started yelling at me and she said, Carissa, I'm sick and tired of walking on eggshells around you. I love you and I know you've been through a lot, but you have to stop. Enter psychotherapy. I did and continue to do many years of EMDR. I don't know if anyone's familiar with it. Let's see, anyone do EMDR in here? I mean, you don't have to display it if you have, but eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. Essentially, it's bilateral stimulation of your brain, and um, it's done with a therapist who's qualified, and it basically mimics what your brain does during REM sleep, and it's very healing, because during trauma, things get stuck in one side of your brain. So this allows your brain to heal so whenever I see this picture, this picture of my dad, my dad, he's dead, and all the details I see around it, details that would pop up even in happy moments, before the therapy, I would get stuck on this image. And therapy helped me to link a positive recovery um, to this image. And I'm going to tell you what that looks like. So I want you to remember this happened in 2008. What is it, 2021? <laughs> Earlier this year, just a couple months ago, I found myself in my therapist's office thinking I had long since passed, you know, I can talk about my dad just fine. I'm cool, we're good, I can laugh about it. Um, but I still had this image of his dead body and it kind of just lingered there. So we started to work on it again. And I had the most amazing perspective shift it was amazing. I'm going to tell you about it now. So during EMDR, I would close my eyes. And in each hand, I would hold this device that vibrates. And it vibrates side to side. And what I do is I bring that memory to mind and all the emotions that it brings with it. Whatever it feels like. And I picture myself in that moment again. And I go from there. And I recreated my reality. And this is what I saw. Now when I walk in and I open that door and I see him, rather than running away and closing the door and locking it behind me, I take his body and I clean him up and I put him in my favorite suit of his. I put him in a casket. And in that casket as he lays, I start to stroke his hair and his face. And I begin to tell him that it's okay. Dad, it's okay. You made a mistake. And sure, that mistake killed you. But we all make mistakes. It's okay. In that moment, I felt so free. Like, I didn't have to be so perfect anymore. From that moment, I closed his casket and I put him in the ground and I sat. And I waited. And eventually, I started to see these little buds sprouting out of the ground. And those buds did what? They grew into flowers. And those flowers became a garden. And in that moment, I realized, surely, if flowers can grow out of his grave, then surely I can make something beautiful out of my life and my experiences. As I was talking to Flip about this, um, maybe a week or two ago, 
it was really fun because we started talking about shit. It stinks, right? People say shit happens. Yeah, it absolutely does. But it's what we do with that shit, right? Because shit is, can be used for, Fertilizer, right? Okay. And what is fertilizer? Fertilizer is used to supply a plant with an element that it's missing to help it with growth. Thus, I know that the painful experiences, the shit that I have had to stand in and smell until my eyes burn and I want to give up on life, that very same shit became the fertilizer that would help me grow and be forgiving and understanding and accepting and non-judgmental of where people are on their journey. And out of that, fertilizer grows flowers and gardens. Shit is everywhere. But we need more gardens. Pain doesn't end, but we can change our relationship to it and turn it into something beautiful. So I just want you to try. If I could leave you with one piece of advice, it would be to stand in your shit and own it and turn it into fertilizer and turn it into something beautiful. And one day you're going to be able to look at it and you're going to say, I did that. I built something beautiful out of that shit. And that is how I built a garden on a grave. Thank you. We know if there's any anonymous memoirs back there. Can somebody check if somebody put one in? But I don't know. I haven't seen too many people in that corner. It looks pretty empty. So come on, guys. Let's rail. You can't see anything. That's, it's better that way. It's better that way. So, yeah. So thank you, Carissa. That was an amazing story. Yes, you can go now. <laughs> Let's give her a hand again. Yes. So we're going to take a 10, 15-minute break. Refill the drinks, get something to eat. Is there anything else I should say, dear? Okay. I've got the go-ahead to let you guys go on break. So 10, 15 minutes, and we will be back. So see you in a little bit. All right. It's time to get those seats again. I don't know where you want to take them, but take your seats. No, that, w that one didn't land. <laughs> All right, so how was that first story now that it's had a moment to sit? Yeah, that was extremely powerful. So just remind you guys, we are on the socials. This is being live streamed, so you can go to Memoirs, True Stories Unfiltered, or Memoir COS. Hit the like button, and you can watch this later on if you want to share it with your family, friends. If you know somebody who needed to hear that story, you can just share it with them. All right, so are we ready for our next storyteller? All right. So let's welcome Peter Lynch to the stage, and his story is Rewrite the Power Script. Let's give him a hand. Well, hello. 
you know, it's funny. So first of all, perspective being everything, and you know, I've been thinking about it, and uh, always getting onto a stage, and immediately the perspective shifts from when I'm in the audience. So, um, I want to talk tonight about really the the the, the power of, I mean, it's a, the, the power of owning your story and the power that I had, that I gained when I started to own my story, the story that I was not okay with allowing myself to tell, to live, to be true to myself. Because you see, 10 years ago, 10 years ago on a clear winter night in Alaska, where I'd moved, uh, I'd moved there to get away. I'd moved there to get away from my problems because I really thought, surely if I can just get, get out of here, Right? Get out of this place, get out of this situation, something in my life will be better. My teenage years were troubled, and I just thought if I can just get away, right? I'm 20, and uh, you know, move, move somewhere else. So I moved to Alaska, the farthest place that I could go that I had a random connection to, so I'm done, gone. And I end up up there, and life catches up with me. And not just life, but all the things that I'd been hiding from within myself uh, hit me at a whole nother level. And so I find myself out in the woods, alone, in the midst of the, fro in the, of the snow and the ice, and it's a clear sky, and you know that that means it's cold. And it was cold, and I'm angry, and I'm just beating my fists into the trees, into the ice, into anything to feel something until they're swollen and bloody, because I hated my life, and I hated myself, and I was angry, angry beyond control. So angry at God, at life, at myself, and angry most of all at the stupid script that I felt like I was living where I was nothing but the powerless victim of a life that I questioned whether it was even worth continuing in. And that was the question that I'd face out there alone on those cold nights, winter after winter, thinking surely somehow my life will get better. And somewhere in the midst of that, and it's something that goes beyond description, was a determination that happened when I would toy with that question, when I would confront that question, is my life worth living? I can't see the hope. I couldn't see the end. I couldn't even see the reason worth, why it was worth continuing at the time, but I did commit to that. And you'd think, it's gotta get better now, right? Sure, that was the, that was the dark night of the soul. It was only just beginning. Ended up getting married to my beautiful wife who's here with me tonight. Uh, and we, we then were two people who were bringing an immense amount of baggage together that we didn't understand into a relationship that then was, that was, it was very challenging for us to be with each other because of our mutual state and the, and the baggage that we were bringing. And so we end up moving to a place that was going to answer all our problems, right? We got a, a great religious, religious, zealous leader here. We're going to go be part of something, going to find meaning, and it was a cult. And people ask, hey, what's it, what's, what's, uh, what's it like being part of a cult, right? Well, for instance, I, uh, every meal is communal, of course, because you barely get any time to yourself. And if you ever did, it was supervised anyway. Uh, so I'm working all the time, literally all the time, like morning till night, there's always something going on to keep me distracted, to keep me occupied, keep me, you know, basically using my energy to build something else and never give anything back to me. Um, and, and so communal meals. Loading up my plate, going through the line, starving at the end of the day. But before I can sit down and eat, I have to go up to the, to the revered elder with my plate like this to get his blessing because, you know, I really have a problem. And uh, so that and many other things like that, you can't, there was no, so my life wasn't mine. 
And so I'm back in this place, and eventually we get out of there, we leave, which is another story. And it was, uh, the escape physically wasn't, wasn't so extreme as it was the, the psychological escape. The dismantling, excuse me, as I catch my breath, <laughs> as I start talking faster than I can breathe, which is one of the symptoms of that perspective, as I mentioned, when I get up here on the stage. <laughs> Flip is going to remind me of the power of breath, but it already reminded me of itself. Um, the leaving, the escaping was a psychological one. It was an emotional one. Was we had to untangle the knots of a year and a half. And it might not sound like much, but if you've never been in a situation, you're lucky. And if you have been under the influence of a narcissistic sociopath, then you know. And so disentangling from those knots was something powerful. And it took us a while, but it was a year afterwards that our, that our daughter was born. And, you know, it was one of those turning point moments where I'm looking into her eyes. And at that point, what had I done? Well, I jumped back into the workforce. You know, I'd always just been the kind of person that I'm like, with that determination, like I said, I've got to make something of my life. I never was the fit for college. I just dropped out, and I'm just like, I'm going to jump into the workforce. You know, so I come back to Colorado, and I feel like, again, my own self-value was in the dirt. So I just thought, well, I'll just be a commercial roofer. That's the first, first opportunity that opens up to me. So I'm a commercial roofer put in charge of the crew, and I'm working all the time, again. And our daughter's born, you know, and I realize, uh, what am I working for? What is the point of this? Because I look into her eyes and I realize I have to do, you know, my, my life is no longer, it's no longer okay for me to live the way that I've been living. I, there was a point of crisis, a point of uh, um, another moment, another moment of determination. I'm going to live for something more. I'd already determined to live. And now I'm going to learn, live for something more. I leave and I start my own business and I begin a journey of business development and personal development as I realize that there's one thing that the business success hinged upon. It was me. And so I had to develop myself. And what that brought me to was re-exploring the past. Why did I end up in a cult? Why was, right? Why was I so, and it brought me back again to that place where I'm that angry 20-year-old beating his fists into the ice, angry at the script of his life, angry at feeling powerless, angry at all the pain that I didn't know what to do with, that I felt like was just empty, pointless suffering. And why? And it wasn't okay for me to feel like that. So I had to trace it back even further, past this point of being angry at the script of my life to look in at my childhood. Why was I even a depressed teenager? Before I even got to Alaska, I was suicidal and I would never even allow myself to acknowledge it because it wasn't okay. Because in the family that I grew up in, we had to be perfect. We had to be good. We were servants of the Lord. And my relationship with God has had to survive the trauma of going through, of being in close proximity to those who call themselves Christians and bring the worst, you know, and give you the worst experience with God that you can have. So I had to go back and revisit those childhood years. And if any of you are familiar with trauma and CPTSD and these things, you know, this was something that, again, I wouldn't even allow myself to even think of the word, let alone, right? And as a man, then there's all, these, all the, the additional stigma about mental health and depression and the trauma. The idea, who are you? Just suck it up. Keep going. What's the problem? Just keep going, right? Why are you complaining? But when I went back and I revisited my childhood, and it, layer by layer, things started to come up that would shock me, that would appall me, that I'd buried, that I'd hidden. And... and what it was was both emotional and physical trauma from my brother and my dad, especially. Two men in my lives that were both 
that were another repeat. So what I saw was, well, I'd ended up in a cult. Why? Because I was prepared for a cult, because my family's a cult. And I never was allowed to look at it that way. Nobody could challenge my dad, though. Another example, what's a cult like? It's when a person, a man, tries to be God in your life. That happened at that cult. It happened in my family. My dad was God to me and my brother and sister. I'm 12 years younger. And I was the first in my family to make the determination that I will challenge that. Because it comes back to when I look in my children's eyes, I know that I have to be more. I have to break the chains. I have to shift the perspective moving forward. That we're not going to live this way. We're not going to live an empty, insipid life and be bitter at the world and claim that there's some kind of a religious reason for that. Because if there's a religious imperative, it's a spiritual imperative, is ultimately rise, take up your bed and walk, become whole. And if I was going to live my faith, I had to do that. And to do that meant to rewrite the script. Because as angry as I got at these dark times when I had the hardest realizations of just how messed up I was, because yes, I had to confront that I would have panic attacks as a grown man, I would have panic attacks when I'd have the slightest degree of challenge or conflict with another grown man. It would make me crumple, and I couldn't handle it. So how, did that, how does that affect job searching, interviews, going for promotion, all those kind of things, handling business transactions? It was pretty miserable. But until I started to look at it, and the first temptation is, again, to feel like a victim of my circumstances. I didn't ask for that. I didn't ask to be, you know, to be beaten as a kid and to have this trauma. But I have it, and the perspective is then, again, I'm raging at the script of my life until I look down and I realize that I hold the pen. And if I allowed it to be, I can allow something new to be. If I wrote that because it's about how I respond, if this is what has been written, then I can unwrite it and rewrite it. And so pain itself becomes my path to power because my experience now, my, you know, I'm, the education that I had, I dropped out of official schooling and I have no certifications, but I tell you that what it gifted me was a deeper understanding of the human psyche than most have through hard experience that I wouldn't wish upon anybody. And it gave me a deeper understanding of the, of the power of communication, which now I implement all the time in my work where I help businesses grow through their sales and marketing. What do you think that is? It's communication. It's the, and also the ability to step into your own full power as the business owner, because the business hinges on you. So everything shifted when I realized that I was the author of my life and that it's up to me to claim the power that comes only through pain, as we just heard. What are you going to do with it? So my choice was to become something greater. And that's what I want. That's, that's my story, and that's my living principle, right? More than anything is pain is the path to power, and you hold the, you hold the pen of the script of your life. We all do. We've all been given things that we wouldn't wish for and we probably wouldn't wish upon our enemies. But it's what you do with that. I don't plan that, but the message is coming in clear, right? Shit and pain are what cause growth. So for all the people out there that are trying to run away from it, we've got two stories that once you turn and face it, that's where all the magic's at. 
Any anonymous memoirs? Woo! Peter, get back here. We got an anonymous. Do we have more than one? All right, Carissa, get back up here. We got two to read. Let's see here. Pick one. Pick one. You don't know how to read? Here. You, you look like the, you got the one with the most. <laughs> you got a novel. <laughs> That's why I picked it. Our first overnight camping trip started out beautifully. The sun warmed our bodies. There was not a cloud in the sky. At 1 a.m. the next morning, we were hiking over a mile from our flooded tent back to the car where we shivered until morning. Now every available time we have off of work, my wife plans our next backpacking or camping trip. When I hear her share our first adventure with others, I fall in love over and over again with her beautiful perspective on the rain. That's so sweet. (laughs) Shift in perspective. If life gives you lemons, make lemonade. If life gives you melons, make lemonade anyway, but you might be dyslexic. (laughs) All right. Thank you for whoever wrote those memoirs. We still have one more storyteller to go, so let's uh, fill out a few more of those because why not? They're fun to read. So we've got 10, 15 more minutes. Let's refill the drinks. Let's talk to a stranger around us and get to know them so that they're not a stranger, and we will be back in a few minutes. All right. Are we ready for our last storyteller of the evening? Let's, let's take our seats back from wherever we brought them from the first time and put them back where they are now. No? You're the only one. You're the only one. And I know my wife is going to tell me I need to change the lights before this next storyteller comes up. So what do we think of this perspective is everything theme of tonight, right? It's very, very strong and powerful. And I know Eric said he's going to come talk to us after Jamie's story, so let's stick around and hear what he has to say, maybe the things that are coming up here at 3E's. But for now, it's time to get to our final story of the evening. So please, let's put our hands together for Jamie, whose story is Behind the Window. Wow, those lights are pretty intense. This afternoon, I was trying to practice a little bit, and earlier this week, I was trying to practice, and I just kept hitting this wall where I couldn't even get a sentence out. And I was like, what happens if I get up there and like nobody's interested, or like this story just doesn't even matter, or it's boring, or it's something? Um, and it reminded me of something I read probably on Facebook <laughs> that said, any time that we come into a new environment, we're asking each other three, three questions. Am I safe? Um, will I be heard? And do I matter? And I guess my intention for this like next 15 minutes or so is that when we all leave, hopefully, 
Um, we all feel just a little bit safer in the world, including me. And we all feel a little bit more heard, or at least that there's the potential to be heard. And uh, that we know that, that I know that my story matters and that everyone here knows that your story matters. So that's kind of the goal. <laughs> Thank you. Um, we've all heard the, from, okay, you know, the statement when people say we only use 10% of our brains. What if that is just a matter of perspective? And what if instead we only have access to 10% of our brains? And what if the other 90% is on the other side of a window? I have an interest, I'm going to sit because that's just my thing. <laughs> um, here. Can I spin? Oh, that makes, that makes it even better. The other way. Okay. Okay. Which way do I go? You just stay there. Ready go. Ready, right? okay. <laughs> Spot. Okay. It's still not low enough, but that's okay. It's the beauties of being short. Okay, so we've heard that you only use 10% of your brain, but what if we only have access to 10% of our brain and the other 90% is on the other side of a window? I have an interesting relationship with windows, probably because so much of my life has been spent behind them. Um, specifically, one picture window in this 2200 square foot red and yellow ranch style house right here in Colorado Springs. My dad actually bought the house that I grew up in because of this picture window. It, um, it frames Pike's Peak. It has this perfect view of Pike's Peak. So he went up to the door one day. He loved to tell the stories. Like, I went up to the door, knocked on the door, and the lady comes to the door, and I say, have you ever thought of selling? And she got this so shocked look on her face, and she's like, how did you know my husband and I were just talking about selling this morning? So he ended up buying the house. Um, if you picture, like, let's say my hand is the window, my shaking hand is the window. Um, on this side of the window, behind the window, my 11 siblings and I lived. And right behind, there was this couch. Then after the couch, there was a coffee table. And then right after the coffee table, there's a piano. And then if you go around the corner, there was like the dining room and the kitchen. And behind that was the backyard. And on the opposite side, the other side of the window, there was a porch and then a yard and then a sidewalk and a city strip, a park, and ironically enough, a K through 12 elementary school. And that was ironic because for those of you who know me, um, my siblings and I didn't go to school. We were home educated. And to say that we were raised sheltered is really an understatement. Um, to give you an idea of how sheltered we were, uh, it's a lot like the story before. Um, no public education, no playing with other kids. Like if we were at a park and we saw other kids coming, we would have to leave before the other kids got there. Um, I'm 38 years old. I didn't know who the Beatles were until about six years ago. My first Disney movie at 24. I didn't know or hear the word vagina until I was like 26 or something. Um, no access to even basic medical care. So, I mean, a very minor medical 
situations became serious and became acute because there was no access to any kind of medical care. It actually cost my dad his life. Um, so it, w it was just like you would imagine that this type of a li oh, and even like books like Little House on the Prairie would have full pages taped together and full paragraphs whited out because it was talking about romance or kids were fighting with each other or just anything that was anything that came in was censored, anything that went out was censored. Um, and my parents, I think, knew that this was a little bit untraditional and might not be accepted by people around us. And so they had a rule that we couldn't go up to that window and look outside where people could see in until about 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon when the bell rang at the school across the street. They didn't want anybody to hear children's voices during school hours. So when the bell would ring at the school across the street, my little sister and I, like all of my childhood memories have this one little sister, um, we would run up to the couch and we would get up near the window and we'd like put our elbows up on the back of the couch and look out the window and watch all of these kids come flooding out the doors at the school. And some of them would run and hit the tether ball and some of them would run and scream and run to cars in the parking lot or whatever, all these different things. But what fascinated me the most was the kids that would put their backpacks on and they'd walk across the park and then they'd walk down the street and disappear. And I was like, they're walking home from school like by themselves. And it, it blew me away, I just couldn't even. So the other rule was that we couldn't go up to the window until the bell rang and we couldn't go into the backyard until the bell rang. Um, so after watching all the kids get out, my sister and I would go into the backyard. And my dad called the backyard the land of Goshen. And if any of you are familiar with the story of the Exodus in the Bible, the land of Goshen was where the Israelites lived during their time in Egypt. And there's a verse in the Bible that says that none of the diseases of the Egyptians came into the land of Goshen. I think, I've thought about it a lot. I think my dad had this view of building some type of a utopia where nothing could touch us. And in the backyard, again, it's a 2,200 square foot house, so it's a really small backyard, but he used every piece of yardage in the yard. Um, there was a slab of cement for us to ride our bikes, like hairpin turns, um, and skate, and he had a basketball hoop back there. There was a Home Depot shed and then a tree with a rope where you could get on the rope and swing off and land on top of the shed. Um, there was a little bench right under mom's favorite apricot tree and bikes and bins full of balls, all of that. It, there was a tetherball court with sand and every night we would rake it so that it was this perfect inviting tetherball court for the next day. Um, so I think he just wanted to make this world where nothing could touch us. What is also ironic about that is I don't think that dad ever thought about that when the Israelites were living in the land of Goshen, they were slaves. So my sister and I would go back into the backyard and we'd get our own backpacks and we'd put pens and pencils and paper and a snack in it. And we would start walking around the backyard, usually a couple times, pretending that we were walking to school. It'd probably take about two minutes and at the end of two minutes, we'd come up to this imaginary door 
And that's pretty much where our game ended because we had no idea what happened past the door, like past the classroom doors. Um, so after getting to the imaginary door, we turn around, wait for the imaginary bell, and then run off and hit the tetherball and go down the slide and make some noise. And then we'd walk around the yard in the opposite direction, pretending to walk home from school. Um, and it was my favorite game. As soon as we did that, then we would start again. And we'd just keep playing the game, walking to school, walking back from school, walking to school, walking back from school. Uh, fast forward probably about a couple decades. And I walked into Pikes Peak Community College out here on Centennial, the Centennial campus out on off of Powers. And for the first time in my life, I was 32 years old, I walked into an American public institution of education, had never been into a classroom before. Um, and the professor got up and he said, I'm Clayton Kendall. We come and we get educated not for the sake of the paper, but because the paper gives us the right to join in the conversation. And isn't that what we all want? It's just an opportunity to join the conversation. And all these emotions, like I don't even know where they came from, just welled up inside of me and I started crying in the class because number one, it was a teacher or a professor. I'd never had one ever before. Um, and I didn't know the difference between a community college or Harvard. And if I did on some subconscious level, I didn't care. It was, I was in a classroom and I was gonna learn something. Um, fast forward again until about six weeks ago, I drove up to the elementary school about 15 minutes from here where my kids go to school. And I walked in in the middle of the afternoon and said to the lady receptionist or whatever you call the people, I said, can I visit my kids for lunch? And she got all excited. She was like, yeah, you can totally visit the kids for lunch. You just need to get on this badge and you should go and volunteer because I used to volunteer when my kids were in school and I wasn't working either, but I was working. I just, <laughs> um, <laughs> so I walked into the, down the hallway, my little girl comes out and she sees me. She gives me this big hug, grabs my hand and takes me through the lunchroom cafeteria, through the cafeteria. And you know that feeling when you can feel that something's like building, it's almost surreal, um, but it's not quite surreal enough to touch it or feel it or quantify it yet. It's just kind of in the air, you feel something and don't really know what it was. I felt that as I was in the cafeteria and then went into the lunchroom and had lunch with all these third graders. Interestingly enough, the conversations were not that much different than what we have. Like there was a little girl who said, he said he was my boyfriend. And then he actually was her boyfriend and he wasn't even so, it's like, I guess things don't change very much when, <laughs> whatever. But, um, and as I was, so I, as I was in the lunchroom for, again, in a elementary school for the first time in my life, this surreal feeling is kind of deepening. All the kids line up and we walk outside onto the playground. And that's when like this, even more like the surrealness just is like, oh my gosh, there's a tetherball. Oh my gosh, there's a slide. Oh my gosh, look at all these kids. They're all screaming and making all of this noise. Oh my gosh, look at me, I'm standing here. And so I ran around, the kids were like, we've never seen a parent at recess before. <laughs> it's like, well, I've never been at recess before, so give me my shot. Um, <laughs> um, 
so I was running and playing and doing all this stuff with the kids. And then the bell rang. And that's when the moment of everything being surreal just hit so hard. And all of a sudden it was like, it wasn't 38 year old me there anymore. It was like that little girl from behind the window was the one on the, um, on the playgrounds and uh, like right there listening to the bell and seeing all the kids. It was almost like there was this feeling of still being behind a window though. It was like it was the little girl from behind the window there and still behind a window only this time it was like two windows and it was the windows of my eyes. And I looked around again, not really feeling like myself, more feeling like the kid version of myself and the kid version of myself looked around and at all these kids and said, but they're all behind windows because they're all behind their two eyes. And that thought came of, okay, maybe I only use 10% of my brain or in my case, maybe 0.5% of my brain, but I've only had access to 0.5% of this huge, beautiful, amazing, horrifying, incredible world. And what if I were able to combine my 0.5% with the 0.5% of the little girl who just told me her brother's in the hospital and the little boy who's cheating on the girls. <laughs> and, and the teachers that are in the classroom. And what if I took all of those percentages and combined them? And then I combined that percentage with the people when I was driving here that were at the stoplights with their percentages. Then what if I combined that with that homeless guy that's always at Nevada and the on-ramp onto I-25 with his percentage and with the percentage from the person that wakes up and is being human trafficked and the child soldier in Africa and those kids in Afghanistan that are walking down the mountain with the water jug to get the water for the day or the jaguar in the jungle or the mice in the cellar. All of these percentages that are behind all of these windows. What if I could do that? And for one crazy, magical, powerful moment, I could have access not just to my 0.5%, but to the whole thing. And I was like, that's why stories matter. And that's why my story matters and why all of your stories matter. Because if I don't share mine and if any of you decide that, oh, my story doesn't matter. It's not important. My perspective isn't important. All the rest of us miss out on that. Whatever percentage it is, that is your unique, special, one of a kind percentage of our story. Um, I don't think I really have anything else to say. It's just that every story matters. You think of that song. Who is it? I don't know the names because I'm still catching up. Who's, 
Who's the guy that sings that? Um, the I see trees of green, red roses too. Louis Armstrong. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. You know, there's a, there's a lot of nihilists in the world that think that there's not a lot of amazingness in this world, but this room is full of amazingness. So I don't know what those people are talking about. They need to stop wasting their time with that mindset. So what did you guys think of this episode of Memoirs? We have a, a Jamie. We have some anonymous memoirs for you to read. And Eric, wherever you are, I know you said you wanted to come up. And Carissa, could you please grab me my papers that I left over there so that I can read the ending thing? Okay. My freshman year, I was forced to do things with a friend of mine. Never saw it as sexual assault until about a year ago. Today, I chose to forgive him and not let it stop me from thriving. Perspective is everything. All right, so now we have to decide what, or I already decided, but we have to announce what the next memoir's theme is going to be. So next month's theme, I have a little paragraph here. In moments when we choose to rise above obstacles, we become stronger, more determined, better in so many small and large ways. We become more deeply committed to a life of purpose and meaning and personal decency as we come to feel a broader connection to the shared experience of humanity. And I know there's already one pre-speaker here. Raise your hand, Jenna. So Jenna may be sharing her story next month. Yeah. And the theme for next month, since it is Thanksgiving, we will add thankfulness to it, but it is thankful for the obstacles. So that is next month's theme. I've got that written right here next. <laughs> if this theme hits you in the soul and you want to join Jenna, tap me on the shoulder, tap her on the shoulder. You can email us at memoirscos at gmail.com. Next month, we will be here November 22nd instead of the last Monday of the month because we don't want to deal with Thanksgiving weekend, so we'll do it before that. So just mark it in your calendars. We will remind you also. So November 22nd, we will be off for December. So I hope you miss us and you come back in big numbers in January. But before then, let's welcome Eric on this stage to let us know what's going on. Um, I don't even want to tell you what's going on because this was so great. Uh, I don't even want to get into what's going on because it's not as important as what we do here as how this, this is, they don't do this anywhere in Colorado Springs or where I'm from, Cleveland. Okay, don't laugh. But um, this is great. Um, tell people about this. We're going to really promote this because this is what we need right now. Uh, we need people talking and listening to each other um, and telling people their stories um, so they can relate because we all can relate. So, um you know, my comedy comedy here is great, but I look forward to this last Monday of the month. So keep doing what you're doing. Bring people here to listen to this.
Um, this is just wonderful to me, so thank you. Yes, give Eric a hand. Thank him for letting us use this beautiful space. So with that, if you feel that you need to hug uh, uh, um, another memoir's family member, I love to say family because it's friends that are family. So that's one of my, you'll see me say that throughout the month all the time on my posts. But hug each other. And as I always say, time and attention is the best gift we can give to each other. So thank you very much for your time and attention. And we will see you next month, November 22nd.